Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for uh, coming. My name is Samir Rahim, um, and I work at Prospect Magazine. It's my great pleasure to be uh, introducing and welcoming Terry Apter to the stage to talk about her wonderful new book, Passing Judgment, Praise and Blame in Everyday Life. Um, by the way, this uh, event is in association with the University of Cambridge, so um, good props to them. Um, we're often advised not to worry if someone says something unpleasant about us, sticks and stones, etc., and all that. And in turn, we know that trusting somebody's positive evaluation of us and not questioning why they might be saying what they're saying, what do they want to get out of it, is often self-deceiving. But as Terry explains in her new book, praise and blame have deep roots in the human psyche, and few of us are immune to either whenever we experience it. In my own experience um, as an editor at a magazine, I know that when a piece comes in to me and I have to really do some work on it and rework it and send some suggestions back to the writer, I will also always do so prefacing it with you know, a lot of very positive thoughts about how wonderful the piece is or how wonderful the piece will end up being once you've gone through all the uh, corrections that I'm going to ask you to. Um, so that you'll feel a little bit better about the, the red marks that I've sent back. Um, although, in fact, I never actually use red, because I think that uh, is terrifying for people. But the odd thing is that I'm also uh, a writer, so um, when I send my pieces in uh, to an editor, and they reply to me saying, this is such a wonderful piece, and this is going to work so well in the end, um, and then, uh, again, the whole list of the red marks and corrections they want to make... Um, I know the trick is being played on me, but somehow it still kind of works. I kind of feel good about it. So uh, Terry, um, in her book, explores all these issues with great uh, depth uh, and nuance. She is an emeritus fellow of Newnham College, Cambridge, a writer and psychologist. Uh, she's the author of nine books, ranging from Raising a Confident Child to How to Get Along with Your Mother. And... <laughs> Uh, uh, there's quite a lot about mothers and uh, children in this, which is, in this book, which is fascinating. And um, uh, she uses lots of different case studies um, to explain her, her theories. So what, what's going to happen is that um, Terry's going to come up here, and she's going to talk for about half an hour, maybe just over, and then we'll have a short discussion and then open it up um, to the audience, uh, you guys here. So please welcome Terry Apter. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm going to begin with a reminder of one of the stories about human beginnings, and that's the story of Adam and Eve, how they lived in God's praise until they did something he disapproved of, and once they were judged and found wanting, they experienced the first time, for the very first time, the toxic emotion of shame. And the story of Adam and Eve can be read as a story about original sin. It can sometimes be read as a story about a lost paradise. But whatever your interpretation, this seminal story highlights abiding themes in our lives. Judgment that involves both praise and blame, and our responses to these, either pride or shame. And these are the themes that, as Samir says, I explore in my new book. But I'm a psychologist, so my starting point is not the Bible. It's our own very early experiences, but also the question of the evolution of human psychology. Why is it we have evolved to care so much about judgment? Well, our human ancestors lived in social groups. And they were dependent on one another for food, for information, for protection. And exclusion from one's group would be synonymous with death. And this is one constant in any of the variety of human environments we see today. It's the need to live with others, to cooperate with at least some of others, 
to depend on at least some of them. And to do this, we need mind sight. We need to see their feelings, their motives, and desires. And we also need to judge them. And we need to attend to their judgment of us. Now, for over 150 years, the human brain was studied largely for its ability to process factual information and to solve problems. It was thought that humans' particularly large brain evolved for the special purpose of mastering these practical skills. But about 30 years ago, a very different hypothesis emerged as to why humans require such large brains. And you need an explanation for this, because in evolutionary terms, a large brain is costly. Um, this large organ, it's about 4% of our body weight, but it consumes 20% of our total intake. And of course, it also increases the risk to both mother and baby, as that big organ has to pass through the narrow birth canal. So, why does such a costly organ make sense? Well, it's now understood that the large size of the human brain results from its fundamental sociability. And this social brain hypothesis is supported by evidence from other species in which relative brain sizes depend on whether the creature is solitary or social. So, for example, brains of birds that flock together are larger, are larger than the brains of solitary birds. And in fact, the brain of any creature actually changes in size. It enlarges by about a third when it goes from being solitary to working in a coordinated swarm. Even the locust, sometimes locusts are solitary, but when they act as a swarm and have to attend to what other creatures are doing, their brain enlarges by about a third. So whether you're looking at locusts or brains or humans, the larger brain is linked to larger sociability, and a big part of using that social brain involves judgments of others. So we learn how to live as alongside one another to cooperate and contribute. And as the psychologist William James, who was brother of the novelist Henry James, and he was indeed a prescient, uh, brilliant psychologist and also a fine writer like his brother, he reflected, I really wouldn't be alive today had I not become sensitive to the looks of approval or disapproval on the faces among which my life is cast. So the human mind has a built-in judgment meter. It often runs on automatic, so that without always being aware, we, in the first milliseconds of perceiving someone, form an opinion, positive or negative. And this is a legacy in part from those crucial survival responses that prime us to assess someone as someone to approach or someone to avoid. But over time, as societies became more complex, the human brain developed more subtle, probing, and varied appraisals. I mean, we're still interested, of course, in whether someone is dangerous or trustworthy, but we also understand problematic nuances in this type of judgment, and we have to weigh things up. We also have more social concerns, whether someone would understand our problems and predicaments, whether we're on the same wavelength, whether we would enjoy eating, talking, joking, or debating with someone, and whether, of course, he or she responds positively to us. So here also you have two systems of judgment, approach and avoidance, very, very broadly praise and blame, and these shape our daily interactions and they also shape our long-term relationships. And it is no use trying not to be judgmental. As humans, we have judgmental brains and judgment is what we do. 
Now we can also look at this, uh, the development of our judgmental brains from a more personal uh, point of view. The first judgment we're likely to experience in our interpersonal world if we're in a, what psychologists call a good enough environment, an environment in which we're born with people who are reasonably attentive to us. If we're born in such an environment, then what we experience is praise from a parent's curiosity, delight, and wonder. Because praise goes far beyond specific compliments or formal assessments. I mean, if you look at the Oxford Dictionary, the first entry for praise is to express warm approval or admiration. And that early parental wonder conveys the message that we are a source of delight. And so praise is part of our world long before we understand the words well done or good job. And should we, as an infant, fail to attract approval and admiration, our very survival is at risk. And even if we do survive, this lack of praise will hinder our development. Because praise in early stages of life is not merely pleasant. Research in neuroscience shows that it is essential to the growth of the healthy brain. Now, the brain grows very rapidly in early childhood, and it grows largely by forming networks of interconnected neurons, which are the basic elements in the brain's communication system. And specific hormones play a role and provide essential fuel for building these brain circuits. And the most important hormones in early brain development are oxytocin, sometimes called the bonding hormone, and endorphins. These are some of the naturally occurring opiates that give us a high, very, very similar to the high of opiates such as heroin. And when a parent's face conveys praise with a message, oh, you're wonderful, and I want to see how you, who you are, and I admire who you are, the infant's brain is awash with both oxytocin and endorphin compounds. If an infant doesn't experience the brain-boosting effects of praise, if an infant is ignored or neglected or abused, then the hormones that flood the brain are likely to be stress hormones. There, there are compelling studies that show how quickly an infant becomes distressed if someone upon whom he or she depends does not pay attention to her, very close attention. And the most common of these hormones, stress hormones, is cortisol. And to the infant brain, prolonged exposure to cortisol is toxic. It leaves the brain not only with fewer neural uh, pathways, but it also renders the brain less plastic, less able to grow and adapt, so that even if the environment, the emotional environment improves later on, it's much more difficult for that child to catch up. And eventually, the neglect or abuse will be interpreted as a kind of blame. It's a message saying, you're of no value, or there's something that's deficient about you. Now, in an infant's world, praise involves a pretty standard repertoire of showing interest and empathy and delight. But in childhood and adolescence, I think each family reveals you, its unique habits and rules for praise and blame. So in one family, praise is steady, consistent, and routinely maintained. In another family, praise is unpredictable and often short-lived. And so when one person responds to praise with easy pleasure, oh yeah, yeah, that's me, while another feels very anxious, oh, do you really mean it? And, and are you still pleased? We often talk about personality differences at play, but it's also very likely that their families used praise in different ways. And of course, the same is true of blame. 
One person takes blame in his or her stride and shrugs it off. Oh, yeah, I messed up, but, you know, it was a mistake anyone could make. While another bristles very defensively and, you know, wants to respond with an attack. You know, it wasn't my fault, and how dare you blame me? But a third person can be immediately flooded with self-abuse. Yeah, I really messed up. I always do that. It's all my fault. And such very different responses are linked to the ways blame is meeting out within our families, and in particular, whether blame is used to highlight a specific mistake, some, some particular action or omission, or whether any mistake is seen to signal a deep character flaw. So the difference here would be roughly what you said was really unkind versus you're really mean. And so important is how praise and blame are used that the history of parenting could be traced through changing fashions in how to praise and how to blame a child. And one of the pioneering educational psychologists, Chaim Gineau, was working on this in the 1960s, and he said that praise was a potent medicine and like all such potent drugs, there should be rules about timing and dosage. Like all such things, you had to be worried about you had to worry about allergic reactions. I mean, a lot of people think that praise is really easy. Chaim Gineau highlighted that no, it's not. It's really complicated, and there should be regulations about the administration of such a powerful emotional medicine. And he could have added that the dosage and risks of praise change according to age, because praise that arouses delight and pride in a baby and toddler can have very different effects on older children. So it's been found that in a classroom, sometimes praise breaks concentration, makes children very anxious. After all, it's a sign they're being watched and they're being assessed. Some children become praise-dependent, and they cannot move on from one thing to another um, until they get a signal through being praised. And one problem is that if children are uh, fed a steady diet of praise, this can be very confusing because they do not know particularly what it is they're being praised for, and they do not have skills themselves to assess their performance. And another big change there's been in fashion about what to is fashion about what to praise. So it used to be thought that you should praise a child for being smart, talented, even brilliant. Um, and then the child would accept these labels and act up to that. It would make the child brilliant, smart, talented. But it was actually found that when, such, when children were told how brilliant and smart they were, they could, um, their motivation and their confidence could be reduced, and it was much more effective to praise qualities that flag the possibility of growth and learning. So the current trend in praising children is to focus on persistence and practice and concentration, to say, you've really worked hard on this, and as a result, you've got better at it, rather than you're doing well because you're so clever. But if we move to the teenage years, then all bets about what works are off. <laughs> Whereas once the parent's admiration was welcome, it can now seem to the teen outdated. You know, you don't really know who I am. It can even seem offensive. Who are you to judge me? or if I'm pleasing you, something must be really wrong. <laughs> Teens want to be their own judge, and the idea that a parent is in a position to judge them, even positively, is really annoying. But if you think praise in adolescence is difficult, then blame is even more complicated. 
Because of the peculiarities of the teenage brain, and it really is a very specific time of brain development when the brain works in different ways, the teenage brain processes social information in ways that often interpret what we might think of as a neutral facial expression in, as anger, hostility, or fear. And so that alerts their panic system, and they're very, very quick to take offense because they're also less good at calming that, um, that primitive alarm that we all feel when someone blames us. Because blame is hard to take at any age. I mean, the feelings that blame arouses are so painful that we have ready to hand a variety of techniques for avoiding it. We might protect ourselves by stubbornly denying our mistakes. You know, that wasn't me, I didn't do it. We might blame others, you made me do it. We might disparage someone else for blaming us, who are you to judge me? And we might transform our memories to make a more palatable version of events. I mean, it's often the case that we forget all of the blameworthy things we did, but remember very clearly our virtues. And we want to avoid blame because thinking anything other than I'm pretty good and I'm certainly praiseworthy delivers a nasty punch to the most primitive emotional parts of our brain, and it threatens us with shame. This is an emotion that is closely linked to our terror of exclusion. And James Gilligan is a psychiatrist who has worked closely with some of the world's most extreme outcasts, and he talks about the brutality of shame. He says it's tantamount to the death of the self, without confirmation of value, without an environment in which we have access to praise. He says the self dies just as surely as the body dies without oxygen. But he also goes on to say that that kind of death is much more painful than any physical death. Now, it may be obvious that praise and blame play a huge role in infancy and childhood, that families with children are awash with judgment, but we never outgrow judgment's power to shape relationships. And in marriage, you know, a couple will often embrace the ideal of total acceptance, yet in the course of any marriage, each partner is exposed to a wide range of judgments about what you did, what you didn't do, what you said, what you're feeling, whether you're paying attention, whether you're being fair, whether you're listening, whether you're being considerate. And we often think we should be non-judgmental in a close relationship, but the closer we are to someone, the more we judge them. And I was amazed when looking closely at marital conversations how praise and blame could be embedded in apparently mundane exchanges. Oh, the toilet's been mended. Well, that could imply, oh, you're so clever, you're organized, you're helpful. Or it could mean, well, finally, you've done something. <laughs> and the partner rarely leaves this judgment alone. Often it's picked up, and if it's praise, it's if the message of praise, the ensuing interactions tend to be smooth as cream. If it's a message of blame, then it ties the subsequent interactions into knots. And one problem is that we're always ready to defend ourselves. So if we feel we're being blamed, you know, we might counterattack. You're saying, this is my fault. You're saying, I'm the un unreliable one. And this might momentarily protect our ego, but it damages the relationship. And I would say that it is impossible to understand the dynamics of marriage unless you understand the dynamics of praise and blame. Now, very little was understood about why some marriages, marriages succeeded and why some failed. 
until a small group of psychologists accepted that they were really stuck. They really didn't understand what was going on. And they had large survey data, they had some clinical cases, but this wasn't enough to move forward. So they said, well, we've got to bite the bullet, we've got to do this qualitative research, which is so messy, so costly, so time-consuming, but this is the only way to do it. And one of these psychologists was John Gottman, and he set up a marriage lab on the medical campus of the University of Washington in Seattle. And this marriage lab was complete with a fully furnished apartment where a couple would discuss both neutral topics and topics of uh, conflict or, or, or disagreement. And cameras and recorders would capture the visual and verbal information, but there was also additional equipment to record the physiological information, including heart rate, perspiration, adrenaline flow, and even little things like the blood flow from the heart to the earlobes and fingers were measured. And this layered information was carefully coded and then compared to the couple's survival rate. Did they remain together? Or did they separate? And if they separated, was it after five years or was it after 15 years? And after three decades of data and over 3,000 couples, Gottman and his team showed that one variable was most strongly correlated with couples' survival rates. And the key variable wasn't whether couples quarreled. A lot of couples somehow just naturally engaged in the high drama of quarrel. The key variable wasn't whether they had interests in common. The key variable wasn't whether the sex chemistry was sustained. The key variable was the role of praise and blame in their relationship. And more specifically, it was the amount of praise relative to blame, because it's not a one-one balance, because blame carries more weight than praise. We have to work harder to process it. We have to manage it and calm ourselves down after that primitive alarm has been set off. So you need more praise than blame. And what they found was you needed about five instances of praise to repair the damage of one instance of blame. And this is now known as the magic ratio. And it marks the probability of a couple's survival. So you may now think that you know all you need to know. <laughs> but we have, we have to be careful in touting praise because effective praise, what we experience as real praise, isn't always easy for someone else to identify. Uh, praise can be used to control people. It can be used to assign roles. You're so helpful. You're always so strong. Well, this sometimes suggests that this is what a partner needs you to be. It can be a reminder that it's dangerous to be something other than helpful or strong. No one can raise a child like you can. Every minute you spend with our child is like gold. Well, that's a wonderful thing to hear. But when it drowns out your own needs for relief from childcare, for balance in your life, for freedom to pursue other ambitions, then that kind of praise can be deeply frustrating. Good praise has ears. It listens. It's responsive to a person's own goals and values. And when praise shuts down its listening function, it becomes a tool of authority. It can be patronizing, controlling, and sometimes even menacing. Now, when we went enter our workplace, we may leave behind that intense, massive family intimacy, but we don't leave behind our judgment meter. You know, in meetings, we're listening to what other people say, but we're also assessing their character and their motives. And if we can't read them, what do we do? Well, we look for someone else whose judgment meter seems aligned to ours. You know, what do you think of Joel's work? Do you have trouble getting through to Emily? We'll ask. These informal exchanges, of course, are a version of that essential human activity known as gossip. 
And gossip is really a way of creating alliances by checking and pooling our judgment. And so important are praise and blame in the workplace that feeling unappreciated at work is one of the most common reasons for leaving an organization. There was a study in which 1,200 people who had recently left their workplace were asked, why did you leave? And 37% said it was because a boss failed to give them credit, failed to give them the praise they think they deserved. And 23% said they left because a boss blamed others to cover up their own mistakes. And lack of appreciation is far more stressful than overwork. And in fact, lack of praise is generally bad for our health. So over and over again, it's been found that life expectancy in affluent areas of one city can vary by about 25 years when you compare it to life expectancy in a poorer area. And epidemiologists have shown that this isn't primarily because of differences in what they eat or whether they smoke or how much they drink, but because of the differences in their experience of praise and blame. Being treated with respect, having your input appreciated, wearing and using and being offered symbols of high status, this creates a healthy environment. Winning prizes, by the way, is also very good for your health. It's estimated that if you win the Nobel Prize, you're likely to live four years longer. <laughs> but being ignored, rejected, avoided, feared, this induces stress, and chronic stress can switch off the genes that protect our immune responses and our heart development. It's the unhealthy habits are seen as a byproduct to living without access to praise. It's the praise poverty that is seen to be the killer. So for most of us, our experiences of praise and blame affect not only our happiness, but also our health and our longevity. Yet there are a small proportion of people who live as outliers. They really don't care about praise, except insofar as it means they can manipulate someone. They, um, are to they can do the most awful things and be accused of the most awful things, and there's none of that primitive alarm with blame or self-blame. And about 1%, it's estimated, uh, of people are like this, and they're generally known as psychopaths. <laughs> but for most of us, this is an alien brain because um, in our everyday lives, we process a vast array of judgments. We try to be fair and empathic. We ruminate over our praiseworthy and blameworthy traits. Um, and we listen to, you know, we do this as we talk to a partner, listen to the news, ponder the shape of public debate. Most of us really, really do work very hard to use our judgment meter well. But there's a new force that is skewing judgment. I'm sure you know what this is. It increases the speed of our judgment, but at the same time, it reduces its reliability. It thrives on low-level information. It makes good and complex information particularly difficult to process, and it diminishes the likelihood that we'll be open to new evidence. And this new force is, of course, social media. And the trouble is with social media is that it thrives on quick judgments, quick, shallow ones, and it also thrives on negative ones. Because in social media, as in anything else, blame carries more weight than praise. But in social media, um, attention, carrying weight, well, that's considered to be praise. People are paying attention to me. People are following me. I'll be really nasty, and um, this is, I'm going to interpret this as a kind of praise. And it's easier to be really nasty to people on social media because they're not really people, they're profiles. And we're also, when we're caught in that solipsistic place, us and our digital device, we don't catch those micro-expressions from other people that, um, th that remind us how unfair and awful we're being. And it may be that 
We've not yet evolved to manage judgment well on social media, but we are deeply affected by it, and teens, as any parent of teens know, are obsessed by praise and blame on social media. So we have to keep up with the proliferating complexities of our judgment meter. We have to scope out when to trust it and when to challenge it. And I would say this is a demanding lifetime enterprise. And generally, there is a basic human eagerness to test and refine our judgments. You can see this every day all around you. It merges in the popularity of debate, in our love of storytelling. It emerges in this festival as we're trying to imagine the world differently and better and more widely. So what am I doing in highlighting our essentially judgmental nature? I think it's been sidelined. I think we wasted an awful lot of time trying to silence our judgments, and we should spend more time managing and using judgment well. And I think having highlighted this, my hope is that it will improve our ability to manage our biases, to tolerate others' views, and also to make sense of the most powerful forces shaping our relationships. Thank you. Thank you so much, Terry. That's absolutely fascinating. The first thought, um, the Nobel Prize adds four years to your age, uh, so too late for Philip Roth. <laughs> he never made it. Um, but um, so it was fascinating what you were saying there about relationships in particular, if I can pick up on that, first of all. Um, my wife isn't here, so <laughs> what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you um, uh, so for some free couple's advice. You talked about the, the magic ratio of praise and blame, and yes, we can see we need to do five pieces of praise for one piece of blame. But how do you do that one piece of blame? I mean, how do you, how do you express your unhappiness with someone which could be justifiable in some way that doesn't make them feel shame, defensive, etc.? Okay, well, one thing I think it's worth highlighting is that um, there's a specific tactic that some people use in marriage to avoid blame they shut down, you know, if I speak, I'm going to say something awful, mm. or I'm going to say something I want to be kind, I hope will be praised, but I know from past experience that um, it will be interpreted as some kind of blame, so I'm going to shut down. And this is known in the trade as stonewalling. You make yourself into a stone wall. And this attempt to avoid blame by shutting down is extremely offensive because the message is you're not worth engaging with. It's not worth talking to you. And I should just alert you to the fact that 85% of people who use this <coughs> technique for avoiding praise, uh, for avoiding blame, are men. Um, stonewalling is something. And, and, and actually what's interesting is that in a marital uh, disagreement, um, men get much more physiologically aroused more quickly than women. Mm. Um, they find it much more threatening, and so they're more likely to shut down. It's a self-defense mechanism which backfires. Okay, so how do we, we... We all have to criticize people, and you talked about that in your introduction, how... Yeah. Um, Certainly, you had to criticize other people's writing, even though uh, people indicating there might be something lacking in your writing were clearly wrong. Um, <laughs> of course, that came across. Yeah, so I th you, can, you, can, you can transform um, blame into praise by saying, this is specifically the problem, and I know you can do better. I mean, I'm looking forward to um, a very near future in which I can praise you, which is exactly what your <laughs> editors are trying to do. <laughs> it's going to be brilliant. Everything uh, will be fine. Yes. You need to get over this. Um, yes, but um, 
so if you're looking at a relationship, you know, you're usually very um, considerate, but on this one issue, yeah. and you're usually very good at listening, but on this one issue, you're actually telling me what I should feel rather than listening to what I'm saying I do feel. And, you know, again, that sounds pretty easy, but it's very difficult because when we're under attack, we forget all of the bad things that we've done and we remember all of the bad things that someone else has done. Mm. And to make things matter, ma and to make matters worse, if I behave really, really badly, then my own bad behavior is inconsistent with my self-image. And so I say that my bad behavior was really caused by your even worse behavior, or you really, really uh, deserved it, and you must have, because otherwise I wouldn't have been so awful to you. <laughs> Speaking about relationships broken, breaking down, I wonder whether we can expand this um, model to sort of geopolitics. We were discussing earlier um, Michel Barnier, the chief uh, EU negotiator, said uh, the UK can't blame us. And uh, we seem to be in a sort of breakdown of um, relationships in, 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 that, in that situation. And I wonder whether, um, you know, what advice you might have for sort of the politicians as they're trying to sort of patch up a, uh, a difficult and diplomatic situation. Well, I'll start with something other than advice. <laughs> um, so it's often called a divorce, and what happens in a divorce is each party feels so rejected. Well, what, you, either you feel very, very rejected, and so that person who has rejected me must be really, really bad um, uh, to behave like that. And if the person knows he's behaving very, very badly, then we'll say, you must be really awful if you're making me behave like this. And I think that it's very similar to what's going on um, in the EU supposed negotiations that um, some people in the EU are, are responding, you know, it, it's awful that you want to leave us. It's awful. You are awful in leaving us. And we have to punish you for this mm. rejection. So a lot of people look at judgment and politics uh, from a more abstract uh, perspective. Um, and I'm very interested in looking at, at, you know, at the base, at the grassroots, and then seeing how it does um, affect um, uh, bigger things. And you can also think of that in terms of how you look at the arguments about whether to go to war, mm -hmm. and a lot of it is you dissed me, um, you know, uh, you deprived me of honor, you shamed me, and therefore yeah. I must annihilate you. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting you talk about shame there. Um, um, you think of it as a primarily negative emotion that ah, comes out. Yeah. Oh, um, okay, but, yes. but, but is there use, are there uses for shame? You know, oh. I remember my mum my always used to say um, to, you know, what you've just done, you know, it's shameful, or sometimes it would be shameless. So I wasn't quite sure if I had too much shame or <laughs> if I had too little shame. But anyway, oh, no. shame is sometimes evolved. But maybe it's sort of kind of good for people to be ashamed of what they're doing sometimes. Well, it, shame has been called the ugly emotion because it makes us feel so awful. But it's also been called the necessary emotion mm. because you need that in order to, uh, you know, it, it, it helps people behave well because you want to avoid it. Mm. Um, but I think there's um, a difference in feeling ashamed at one point and living in a context in which you are deprived of all praise, that you yourself are seen as shameful, mm. um, that there, you know, people aren't giving you a chance, that there's no, they don't see you as someone who might contribute, they don't think your feelings or your thoughts are of any value. So, um, you know, you, you, a huge difference between, um, you know, you should be ashamed of this mm. um, and shaming someone um, living in shame. Absolutely. And family dynamics, as you mentioned there, also apply to some extent to in work environments um, yes. as well. Um, you've got this thing now when certain companies do something called 360-degree assessment. I don't know whether any of you 
have experienced this, you may well have, where you have to both assess yourself and your manager assesses you, gives you ratings, um, but you then have other colleagues who you choose and then they assess you and assess, uh, assess you back. And I wonder whether, um, whether it comes to being judged by our peers, there's a difference between that and being judged by a boss who's you know, going to have some authority over you. Is it more, more difficult, in a sense, to be judged by people who are um, on the same level of us? Well, um, one of the ways that you um, exercise power is by having your judgment matter. Mm. So um, you know that your uh, boss is already in a one-up position, and you, you know you know, uh, and you may know, believe that you have to take it. Though, as these studies show about why people leave a workplace, if they think that it isn't being used well, mm. then they may—they're far more likely to leave. Um, I think looking at um, someone standing up here, standing alongside you. Uh, it's complicated because you are uh, usually in a relationship where you feel uh, you understand someone, you're agreeing with someone, and sometimes in the context of these um, appraisals, the criticism will come out out of nowhere. Mm, mm. Um, and uh, you'll feel wrong-footed, you'll feel almost betrayed. You know, you were supposed to be on my side. I know my boss isn't on my side yeah, all the time, yeah. but you were supposed to, and you're supposed to understand. And also there's that, well, you could have... I mean, so another thing I talk about is friendships. And, yeah. you know, um, don't say anything behind my back or, or officially that you're not willing to say to my face but it sometimes is much easier to say it uh, behind one's back. Absolutely, and that's sort of the, 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 sort of the grease that wheels human relationships in some ways. Yeah, well, politeness is one way of dampening down and even disguising some of our more negative uh, responses, and this is one reason why um, negative responses are much more powerful, because we it's known that we usually try to um, keep them in check. We don't want to show them too brutally. Uh, and when we do, when we lose our temper, a lot of people say, oh, I lost my temper and I didn't mean what I said. Yeah. The experience is you really meant what you <laughs> yeah. said when you lost your temper. At least you meant it in that precise yeah. moment. Yeah. Um, uh, you talked about, there's a fascinating phrase you use in the book and you picked it up in uh, your uh, talk there, mind sight. Yes. So if we're going to try, and, you know, instead of being non-judgmental but judging better, yeah. what is mind sight exactly and how, how can we use it to, to sort of do those things better? Well, mind sight is a big, big thing and it inv um, I'll jump to, to uh, a more developed... I mean, it's very, very interesting the way it develops in infancy and children, how yeah. quickly it develops. Nonetheless, it's the, the ability to uh, see what other people are thinking and feeling, and we are much better at that than we usually allow. Or certainly other people are much better at reading me than I think they are. I may think I'm hiding a lot of things, but there are all sorts of you know, micro-expressions, all sorts of ways that I'm leaking what it is I feel and think and my attitudes towards things that you are picking up that I may think I'm hiding. And this is the world we live in. Um, sometimes people stop being interested in what other people are thinking and feeling. And this is a, you know, a fixed, rigid judgment. That often happens where, you know, don't say another word, or mind reading. I know what it is you're thinking. You know, you're trying to do this. And that's um, extremely insulting because it's saying, um, I'm, I'm not going to try to really read you anymore. I'm telling you who you are. Absolutely. Absolutely fascinating. Got loads more questions, but I want to bring it up to the audience. So maybe if we can have the, the lights up, if we can see some uh, hands going up. So yeah, just stick your hand up. There's a lady right there, the first, first person I saw, that she's wearing an orange top, I think. So I'm intrigued about your comment about prize winning, uh, and not the Nobel Prize, but in a workplace when you give awards. So you're obviously going to get benefit in the individual or the team that gets the awards, but I'm wondering about the consequences on the people who haven't been recognised. Right, okay. 
Well, we all have to, we all have to accept those consequences. Um, uh, you know, it is very difficult always to be enormously pleased for other people. But you could do it in such a way as saying, um, you know, you are linked, you belong to this workplace. There are people working alongside you who are really great and we're all part of a team. I think that would be one way. Um, and it also just is a fact of life that um, some people, we, won't, we won't always be able to win the prize. We know how, um, how awful people who can't be the non-winner can be, you know, someone who always needs to be the one who wins. This is one of the things we learn in childhood. So uh, not winning prizes is not bad for our health. What's bad for our health is having no access to people, uh, showing appreciation, showing respect, wanting your input, thinking you're great. And you can do that in all sorts of ways other than prizes. Uh, yep, yeah, there's a lady over there. Thank you very much for a really interesting talk. Um, I wanted to, um, to move the question of uh, praise and blame away from the interpersonal to a kind of wider social right. plane. Yeah. Because um, I noticed in your talk you focus more on the sort of relational. But, but one of the things that affects all of us, I think, is the way that society delivers praise or blame to us. Yes. Um, and for particular groups. Um, for example, I've worked with many women. I'm a psychologist myself. I've worked with many women who've been sexually assaulted. Yes. Um, for whom... Um, the kind of shame that they've felt as a result of what's happened to them and the judgments yeah. of other people have made be one of the hard things to deal with. Um, it, more, more recently, Meghan Markle, there was a lot of comments about being straight out of Compton or being exotic, which was an implied comment on her biracial heritage. So I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how people deal successfully with the kind of social judgments which seek to put groups of people in society down. Okay, well, thank you for that. Um, I think when you talk about abuse and shame, that's very important because children who are abused, for example, do get the message, you are worthless, you are of no value. And um, at any time, if we're abused, the message is, you know, what you think um, doesn't matter. Now, um, how, th there's not one way of dealing with that. There's not one way of addressing that because you have to go back to what it is, the, to the context in which a person is living, in which they're thinking about what's a value and who values them and how they express that. So, uh, I mean, one complicated thing can be is if you're looking at... Um, if you're looking at the way men are shamed, um, in, order to, in order to excise some of that shame, you have to say, you know, you're not supposed to be um, in control. You're not supposed to be powerful all the time. We have to take away these myths about who you should be. Um, uh, with, a w with a woman who's been abused, you might um, take a very different tactic and say, well, whose fault is it, and how did that happen, and what can you do now, and remind her that she's not that one thing, um, that there are many other, I mean, I'm sure you know this as a psychologist, there's not that one thing. Now, when you come to groups, um, it's more difficult. Uh, I wouldn't worry about Meghan Markle because she has so many other, um, <laughs> so, so such a good access to sort of praise and status in other ways. Um, but for social groups, that's almost um, too big a question right now, but it's a very, very important one that when you belong to a group and you feel that just because you belong to this group, you're not going to be listened to, you're going to be feared, then that is shaming. And that kind of shame often leads to um, real reprisals. Uh, and so it's very dangerous for a society as a whole to exclude some of its members on the basis of any kind of stereotyping, because it, you know, it will, in the end, be very uncomfortable for everyone. Thank you. Very good stick. Is there there's someone there? We'll come to these people in a bit. But yeah. Um, on the topic of uh, social media, 
and uh, machine-based praise, does it carry the same weight as uh, what we've been talking about of the human interaction? And should somebody like Facebook um, have a dislike button that you could actually push after you've created five likes? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Facebook has often uh, considered and discussed the question of whether it should have a dislike button, and it says it prides itself on not, because that would be so powerful. But of course, you can do all sorts of other things on Facebook. Um, does praise have the same weight on social media as it does in interpersonally? No, it doesn't. But uh, when we get more followers, when we get anything we interpret as praise, there's that dopamine jolt, then we say, ooh, how wonderful. But because it doesn't lead to that satisfaction that we do get interpersonally, we say, we don't say, oh, this is no good, this is useless praise, we say, I want more. I've got to see whether I have more followers, I've got to post something else in order to get more praise. So the dissatisfaction can be very counterproductive because instead of saying this is shallow praise, it doesn't mean anything, we should just ignore it, then too many people say it's not satisfying, so I need more of it. I have to engage more in this. Whoever invented the like button was an evil genius. There's a, there's a lady here right in front who's had her hand up all the way through. Hi, thanks for a lovely presentation, it's oh. fascinating. Um, I wanted to ask you, one or two really very big names have come out onto the um, platform at Hay and have said, um, I'm really surprised that anyone wants to come and listen to me. And it seems to me that that's sort of saying two things. First of all, that adults become resistant in some way to understanding praise. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure how that works. And the second thing is that we find, or I find anyhow, such humility really attractive. So uh, when you come across someone who is humble about themselves, you know, why do I like that so much? Right, okay. Um, that puts you in a position in which your praise matters to that person. So, you know, oh gosh, did I do a good job? Um, oh, you've come to see me. It's a way of saying, I'm responding very positively to your interest, to your curiosity, to your willingness to come and sit in this hot room um, and listen to me. And you're telling me also that what I have to say might be of interest, and you're responding, and all of this is a kind of praise. So I, and we want our praise to be valued. So I think that the pleasure you find in someone saying, oh gosh, um, I'm surprised you've come here, um, is a way of saying your praise is of value. I value it, I value you. Okay. We've got time for one more, maybe this lady at the front here. Yeah. Thank you. Um, the, uh, you described at the beginning of your talk that this was a physiological reaction that infants and then children and then adolescents have. Is it affected by culture? So would a Brazilian child react in the same way to a nuanced praise that a Finnish child would, that an African child would, that a Bengali child would? Has anybody done that? Or are you speaking from a, a, a particular cultural miller's um, perspective? Right, okay. Well, when I talk about the physiological um, responses to praise and blame, <clears throat> I'm not saying it's not a mental response. It is a mental response. There are also physiological counterparts to our mental responses. So just to that, would people in different cultures respond differently? Well, not only people in different cultures, but all individuals respond differently. Uh, they have uh, different cues about how dangerous blame is. They have different cues about what counts as, blame, uh, what counts as praise. But, you know, I've given um, uh, an evolutionary account of why we care so much about judgment. 
So I would say that whatever the culture, what you praise and how you praise and how you shame and how you blame, that will be different, vast differences. But our need, I do believe one constant is the need to feel that we are positively um, participating in a group that matters to us, and that is a human constant. Absolutely fascinating, Terry. Um, she will be signing uh, books after the uh, event, so please come and do uh, speak to her about it if you have any more questions. She's all, Terry has also very kindly agreed to um, come to the prospect stand afterwards, where I'll be there as well. Do come and talk to me. One tiny plug. We've got an excellent subscription offer. Uh, three issues for one pound plus a bottle of wine. And if that sounds too good to be true, come and talk to me and tell you why it isn't. But please, thank you. Please, thank you, Terry. Please, 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 please,